this episode. Based in the Howda? Howda. 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 The Netherlands. So the rest of the world knows it as Gouda. Your chairman to blame for that. I have this uh, this 4x4 travel business. It's like storytelling. That's just a thing for you. Jump in, share the story, and then we'll, we'll have a look at it. And turn what looked like a dead end into a highly successful organization. It does sound like a broomstick out of Harry Potter, though. And it would be a real downer if these guys failed after that, right? Welcome to Anecdotally Speaking, a podcast to help you build your business story repertoire. Hi, everybody. I'm Sean Callahan, And hi, everybody. I'm Mark Shank. And we've got a special guest today, one of our partners based in the Howda. 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 The Netherlands. So the rest of the world knows it as Gouda. Um, and uh, his name is Mark Janssen. And uh, Mark, I'd love to—I'd t- love you to just start by introducing yourself and talking about how you came to be an anecdote partner from that trip in the Pyrenees. Yes, yes, yes. Well, it was in Portugal, in fact, Mark. And uh, and we've got uh, uh, Paul Honeywell, your chairman, to blame for that. Um, he, yes, yeah, he, he was, uh, as you know, I, I, I have this, uh, this four by four travel business and he was in the first group of customers that I uh, took through the, uh, on a tour in the, in Portugal in 2015 and, uh, uh, which was an, an experience he, he, he will probably remember for the rest of his life. And, and, and so will I, uh, 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 last year we uh, uh, we were chatting on the phone. We we always we've always kept uh, in touch. We became friends really, and uh, uh, he uh, we we reminisced about what happened in in Portugal. And he said, "Well, it's just you know all these things that I remember and the stories that we tell each other. It's like storytelling," and uh, um, which I had never realized consciously. But when we talked about it, I thought, "Yes, that's it." And he and he and he said. I know I'm chairman of a company in Australia called Anecdote who are in the storytelling business. They are storytelling for business. That's just a thing for you. You'd love that. So I think the rest is history. The rest is history. Yes. I think we got on the phone mark in in August or something or maybe September. And, uh, um, uh, and then I enrolled in the in the training program, and now I am a uh, an anecdote certified accredited business partner. Yes, yeah. that's right. And that's, of course, yeah. you know, this is built on top of all those years as a management consultant as well, right, Mark? It's right. Uh, that's you know, it, it hasn't just yeah. been four wheel drive traveling in in all this, but no, 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 uh, no. yeah, no, it's it's great to have you part of the team. Um, now, we you have a story for us, right? And um, I do. And we'll do what we normally do with these stories. We'll uh, have a look at it from a few different perspectives. Um, but I think it's probably best if you jump in, share the story, and then we'll we'll have a look at it. Yeah. Over to you, Mark. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you. It's it's a story about visionary leadership, and it starts in uh, 1964 when. Uh, Larry Nadler inherits uh, his father's company called uh, the Canadian Ladies Corset Company, founded in uh, Montreal in 1939. Yeah. And um, it, they, they were in the brasiers business, very successful. 
And uh, Larry ha had an uh, MBA from uh, Harvard. He was interested in technology and marketing and, and design. And he set off to design new types of brasiers. And in 1966, they launched the Dreamlift 1300, which was a very intricate, highly technical affair consisting of, of more than 50 pattern pieces, it was very expensive and very successful. And really, the, 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 the business went from strength to, to strength with all sorts of uh, interesting marketing campaigns, TV commercials. And by 1969, so the end of the 60s, they had 30% of the Canadian and North American market. They exported to countries all over the world, had three production facilities in the Montreal area, and employed about 1,000 people. And then in the 70s, as Larry Nadler liked to say, the bottom fell out of the girdle because women's lib had picked the bra as a symbol of oppression and ritual bra burnings were taking place everywhere. Even Dolly Parton claimed to have burnt her bra. In the first three years of the 70s, the market shrank by 30% approximately year over year. Some manufacturers shut down, others closed to uh, uh, scale down production. Canadell was uh, uh, hanging in there. The company was now named Canadell, and uh, but Larry uh, knew something had to happen. Then in 1973, a French company entered the Quebec market with a very flimsy, uh, a very comfortable and lightweight model called the Wheat, and Larry saw an opportunity. He flew to France, met with the manufacturers, and said, look, can I produce this uh, garment in, under license? The French refused, but uh, Nadler said later in an interview, that hour in their office was worth the entire trip because he realized that no bra, the slogan for the wheat bra was just like wearing no bra. He realized that that slogan was digging your own grave because they were in the bra business. And then you <laughs> advertise yourself with just like wearing no bra. So you might as well not have a bra. Uh, so it shouldn't be no bra. It should be less bra. Back home, he got everyone together in the main production hall people standing between the sewing machines. He told them what had happened in France and of his insight. And then he said, we're not going to shut down. We're not going to scale down. We're going to expand. Now, mind you, the less bra bra only existed in his head. So they had to work very quickly, set up teams, uh, uh, focus groups with customers. And in 74, launched the Dici with the slogan, Dici or nothing which came in cubes uh, with holes in them so that you could feel and see the fabric. It was very comfortable, very supportive, and it was an instant success. In 76, they had doubled their revenue compared to 1970, employed 1,500 people, and they'd weathered the crisis. So I think this, this story illustrates how a visionary leader who has an eye for the environment and for, for changing circumstances can adapt his vision and turn what looked like a dead end into a highly successful organization.
Very good. Thank you, Mark. That's uh, that was uh, really interesting. It's amazing how these companies go through these ups and downs. Some don't get past the down, right? And so I suppose yeah. that's that's yes. that's the key point, isn't it? Um, yeah, like like your BlackBerry. Uh, yes, the was, the BlackBerry, yeah, you had a recent podcast about. Yes, exactly. Yeah. The BlackBerry yeah. Yeah. Uh, wasn't an example of that. So what do we what do we like about that story? You know, what are the things in the story that uh, really jump out for us? Mark Schink. See, he's got two well, marks here. This is very complicated. Yeah. Well, for me, one of them was the Dreamlight, the Dreamlift 1300, just the, you know, the, the description of that, of how intricate it was. And like, okay, I get the idea. Like, it's a very complicated thing, intricate, uh, expensive, as you said. And it's a lovely, it sets up a lovely contrast with the later version. And so yes. I think yes. that, that having that detail of the Dreamlift 1300, kind of sets that story up it does sound like a broomstick out of harry potter though so, <laughs> that was what the was, thing i certainly the... certainly came yeah. to my but, mind but the, yeah yes but yeah <laughs> but th those those names they found for bras were, were fantastic anyway another one was called burst petal burst petal yeah i know like this yeah. yeah. why wouldn't you yeah why not yeah what was um, the broomstick yeah. in harry potter called come on what was it Oh, I, you know, that's a good question. I was trying to think of what it was, but uh, do you know, Mike? No, no. Okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll let our if listeners, was, well, listeners to send in you know, what you. the answer to that is. Um, actually, one of, the, one of the things I like in, in the story is just to, there's two images that really jump out for me. And even though you didn't say too much about the first setting, which was when he goes to, to France, and I'm assuming it's Paris, um, and he's sitting in that meeting room asking for the license opportunity and I can for some reason that conjured an image for me but then the real strong image is when he comes back and he's standing amongst the uh, you know, sort of the sewing machines and he's announcing that no no, no we're not going to contract we're going to expand and for some reason I can really imagine that I've, I've got a picture in my mind so I thought that was terrific in that story again these contrasts are, are terrific. Yeah. The um, market was really bad at the time. And, and so people were feeling down. Other companies were, were shutting down or, or scaling down. And, and then he reaffirmed his commitment to the business they were in like this. So it really invigorated them, even though there was nothing yet. So yeah, that's, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, what did you what did you like in the story as you told it? Like you know, from a from the teller's perspective, what do you like in that story? Oh, the, 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 this particular part is like yeah. you. I can, I can imagine. Uh, I really have no idea what a factory all like that looks like, but you imagine a huge room with all those machines and people standing there, yeah, anxious perhaps. What's going to happen? Is he going to announce that we're going to stop? But no, it's the complete opposite. So that's that's what I yeah. I, uh, I really like. Yeah. So I another think... thing that I thought was quite useful or important in the story was the you know the turning point and the, you know the uh, women's lib the bra as a symbol of oppression, yeah. Dolly Parton yeah. burning her bra. You know that that yeah. kind of turning point. Yeah. Uh, again, uh, is a, you know it's an important part of the story that that sets up the, the rest of the story and the point that you're making. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm reading this really interesting book at the moment uh, by uh, a, a guy where I think he works at Syracuse University, George Saunders, his name is. And he talks about that any story has to have this 
sort of motion that keeps pushing the reader forward. He, he's a literary guy, but um, but he had he, he told he tells this little analogy. He sort of says when he was a kid, he had those cars, um, you know, those little tiny matchbox cars essentially, and the matchbox cars could be put on a track, and on the track were these little um, battery operated. Uh, what would you call them, uh, petrol stations. But the petrol stations pushed the car forward, right? So he would have three or four of these things around his track and he would start it in the morning, go to school, and when he came back, his cars were still going around the track. And he said, in a way, your story has to have these little petrol stations, right, that keep pushing things forward. So, you know, the Dolly Parton, the the 70s, the burn the bra thing, that's a petrol station, right? You know, going into the, um, you know, all the sewing machines and making the announcement, another petrol station, um, you know, like having, having, having the meeting in Paris, petrol station. And so it's pushing this, this story forward. Uh, and at the end, I think it's lovely how, you know, it'd be a real downer if these guys failed after that, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, we wouldn't set, have heard about it, mate. We've uh, set an expectation yeah. in this story that they're going to be success. And so you're able to say what those successes were, that they've doubled in size. And now, you know, you know a much bigger organisation uh, that has, yeah. has had a lot of impact. Um, and so I thought that was that was really good. Yeah. What about the, the flip side? Like, what are some of the things that potentially could make this story even better? Well, well, for me, mind? Yeah. One, one, one thing that springs to mind is building off the point you were just making, which is what's at stake for Larry when the burning the bra, you know, kind of amping up his sense, you know, his, his concern, his worry, his frustration, his fear that he was going to lose his business, his worry about his employees, mm-hmm. just building up the, yes. the, you know, the, the stakes. Yeah. So that Good could point. that could really amp up that story, you know, like so that this you you basically that trip to Paris becomes a pivot point, but they said no, right? You, that that's another you can use it as another petrol station. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. I can imagine yeah. in him sort of you know with his hand, you know, his head in his hands, just sort of going, um, "What am I going to do now?" You know, and yeah. then he has the light bulb. Yeah, so I think uh, there is definitely that. Yeah. What about for you, Mr. Janssen? What well, do you think would make that story? You know, I, I, I agree that could be uh, uh, boosted a bit. One thing, when I told the story, I suddenly realized that when I introduced the wheat bra, I forgot to mention their slogan, just right. like wearing no but bra. you picked it up later. Yeah. I picked it up later, yes, when yes. I realized that. I, oh, I've got to say that. Otherwise, I said false flat. Yes. Uh, but... Uh, um, and I thought that was a good pickup, the way you threw Because yeah. I, I noticed that as soon as you said it, I noticed you didn't tell that part of the story. And and then I saw you pick it up later. And, okay, well, that still makes perfect sense, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's funny, funny how that goes in your head as well. Yeah. Um, One of the things that I think that could be, I guess I have a preference for not telling people what the story is about at the end. If you like, I get this feeling that sort of drags the story down somehow, you know. I think he can be really on an up, you know, and and to sort of get them to sort of say, and it was an amazing success, you know, like that's the end of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Sure, you might go on later to say that, but it needs to have a beat, you know, a pause there before, 
you're going to that next component so that gives the listener just that moment to, I don't know, pull it in, get it in their head, sort of think about what that story means for them. Um, so that's been my only other thought about the story. Of course, there's lots of different ways of ending stories. Yeah, and I'm a I'm a I'm a I'm a big fan for for being clear on your point because when you're clear on the point you're trying to make, it really helps you sharpen the story as you tell it. And so it's a fantastic device, not just for the, I believe, for the audience, but also for the storyteller. Sure. Right. So being really clear on the point that you're trying to land, um, and yeah, and so so for me. Land, finishing that by saying, and so it's just a wonderful example of how a leader who you know, totally committed to one path can change, on you know can can see an opportunity, respond to a situation, and turn what seemed to be failure or potential failure into a tremendous success. Yeah. Some, you know, well, so yeah. Or alternatively, uh, put that at the beginning of the story. I, I was thinking that. Yes. Yeah. 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 Because uh, if you do. That so if you end with the point rather elaborately, like like Mark is just suggesting, and I also did, um, you miss the bang that you just mentioned, uh, Sean. That uh, uh, so if you put it at the beginning, you can end with, and it was a tremendous success. They doubled revenue compared to 1970, employed 1,500 people. End yeah. of story. Yeah. yeah, and it's not to say that you still can't do that sort of reiteration of the point mm. at the end. Uh, but I think there just needs to be a bit of space. You know, yeah. like you've yeah. got to take a deep breath at that point because I really believe that the listener has to absorb it in some way um, before you kind of tell them what it's about. So yeah. anyway, that's, um, that's great. I think this is a good one for the repertoire. Hey, so we've talked a little bit about about the point, but let's let's expand that a little bit. You know, like where would we use this story? Like where would this be a good story to to throw into a conversation at work? Well, whenever anybody's uh, looking at a challenge, you know, when things are going bad. Yeah. So it, it depends on how you look at it. Larry saw it. You know, yeah, it was a challenge, but he didn't. He looked for for a way out of it, right? Yeah. So the way you, in, in fact, one. The way you respond to a challenge is what's important. You know, I was uh, talking to a, um, a senior leader of a big professional services firm this week, and he was telling me that when COVID hit, a lot of their competitors contracted, right? They pulled back because they figured, oh, gee, we're not going to have, you know, the work to keep us going. So let's contract our workforce so that we can manage the costs. He did the opposite. He went into his customers and expanded. He sort of said, we're going to work doubly hard. And in that 18 months of COVID, he just took over the market share against his competitors. And again, it's this sort of ballsy move that sometimes you have to do something that's counterintuitive. So there's, you know, uh, what's his name? Larry, is it? Larry, yeah, yep. Larry, and Larry, Larry yeah. he goes back instead of sort of saying, gee, we're in a pickle here. We're going to have to contract, manage our costs. He's going, no, I've got an idea, right? And I think it's a big one. So we're going to expand. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's an amazing move, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and because- it's, I'm now reminded of the um, Henry Ford example yeah. where against 
uh, well, he, he nearly he was nearly sacked by the board for his decision to to double workers' wages, and uh, at a time when they were earning almost two dollars fifty an hour, and he doubled it to five hours, and everyone's going, "You're mad!" But the improvement he got in retention and productivity far far exceeded it, and they were hugely profitable after increasing after doubling the wages, yeah. and uh, counterintuitive. Yeah. Yeah. Now we have to be be careful of survivor bias in all this, right? Which is that that bias. If you take a sample of, let's say, you're looking at entrepreneurs, right, and you take just look at the successful entrepreneurs, you might sort of look at that sample and go, "Hey, success, successful entrepreneurs are in their 30s. So if you want to be successful, you need to be 30, right? But if you take a wider sample," you know, the full population or as big a population, you might discover that, in fact, all those 30-year-olds, like let's say 90% of them fail, right? So you get now a totally different story. Um, the story is, you know, yeah, they, they do succeed, but there's many more that fail, right? So it's, it's a totally different story. I guess what I'm saying is, you know, we just you just got, even though these stories are, um, you know, inspirational, inspiring, at the same time, you sort of got to think, okay, but, What's happening with the guys who fail in all this? I don't know. I throw that out there. It's probably counter counter to what we should be talking about, but it just occurred to me. Uh, no, but the the, the, uh, the story about was he Francis Wald, the mathematician, World War Two, yeah, um, and uh, looking at how do you how do you put armor on planes? Where do you put armor on planes? Because you can't put much. And they did a study of all the planes, you know, of all the bullet holes in the planes and realized that most of the bullet holes are in the back. And so they put the armor in the back and then, and Wald goes, no, 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 no. <laughs> the reason that they're all in the back is because the planes that get hit in the engine don't come back. And so your yeah. sample's yeah. skewed. The survival bias. That's yep. right. We're only looking at the, the planes that got back. Yep. And uh, not all the ones that fell out of the sky. Yeah, no, I think, yeah, you're right. When we go back to the purpose of where you would tell this story, I think that's whenever you're faced with that situation, with that dip, um, I think this would be a good story. And, you know, it's a, it's a story people wouldn't expect. That's what I think is good too. I, I, I think if you could use it in other uh, circumstances as well. Um, we, what, when uh, Nadler came back from France, he got everyone together yeah. and he, he told everyone, so all the workers, not just his management, all the workers, what had happened. He was open about it. Yeah. I went there for a license. They said, no. Ah, disappointment. But we've got something else. I have an idea. And, and that really reinvigorated the entire company. Yeah. And I, I think that's an, another point. You, you just tell everyone yeah. what has happened, yeah. if it's yeah. been within reason. But uh, yeah, yeah, I think it's a great yeah. principle, yeah. right? Yeah. I remember when I worked at IBM, there was, uh, at the time, um, IBM was buying PricewaterhouseCoopers, you know, and it was, and the price, of course, the PricewaterhouseCoopers people were, um, and there was a lot of pressure as to what was going on. They're worried, they're anxious, and the CEO uh, it was before we had a lot of, uh, you know, sort of internet devices and things like that. And so it's not like he could use that. But what he did was he would make a recording on a voicemail that everyone could dial into and hear him speak, right? It was like a Monday morning or whatever. 
And, uh, and even if he, he recorded, and this was the majority of cases, he would say, uh, look, we've had some good meetings this week. Nothing big has changed at the moment. We're, we're making progress. Even if he just said things like that, the employees really appreciated uh, the fact that they were dialed in at some level as to what was going on. So, yeah, fantastic principle, I think. Cool. Cool. Wow. What do you reckon? Let's give it a give, give it a rating. a rating. Yeah, Mark. What do you think, uh, Mr. Schenk? All what, right. Where do you sit this in your um, your story meter? Yeah, look, I, I think this is a this is a good solid story in in the category of the walled planes and uh, Henry Ford, etc. I'm going to give this a seven. Solid seven. Solid seven. This is where we sit. We love the sevens, right? Yeah. Right. I, I'm going to give this an eight. I think this is a good story. I, I like. I would like to tell this story. Right? I feel I've got to get some of the lingo in my head. I can't remember all the names and things like that as of yet, but uh, I'll get Mark to uh, send me the details so that we can put it up on our website and everyone can cool. add it to their, you know, their repertoire. So yeah, great work, Mark. That's that was an excellent story. We really appreciate that. And I'm just thinking, is there anything we need to um, touch on before we finish up today? We've, we've got some new courses coming out, don't we, Mark? Yeah. So we've just uh, launched. Well, we actually put two new storytelling polluters public programs on the website the last few days. So yes. we've got one coming up in July, and then we've got uh, additional ones in September, October. And so there's opportunities no matter where you are in the world because we've got the time zones for different areas so that you, all the time zones are covered that's great uh, and that's if great. you go to our website anecdote.com forward slash events all the details are there and you'll see uh, the story power data right so how do you tell the story of your data this is proving to be very, what would you say, popular. People are very interested in how to do this. There's a lot of everything's data-driven these days. Unfortunately, uh, we often have the case where there's a lot of data and there's no story, and therefore it lacks meaning. So yeah. if and you I want to learn how to are, do that, right. Yeah, Mark? A lot of people are, uh, are really interested by the when, when they understand the difference between data visualisation and data storytelling and how right. those two terms are often uh, mistaken. Yes, you know, they, they concatenate them I think. when they are in fact very different things. Yeah, indeed. So anyway, so we're doing that. So again, go to that uh, URL that Mark mentioned and you can sign up there. Well, guys, I think that's a great place for us to wrap. So thanks everyone for listening in to Anecdotally Speaking. And of course, yeah, tune in next week for another episode on how to put your stories to work. Bye for now. Anecdotally speaking, was engineered by Dave Stokes from author to audio.